Oh, we should warn you, Dennis. So we always start off with a quote, but today's a little special. Jen, <laughs> Jen's doing her quote as an impression. Uh, last time we, our guest, told us that Sean Connery was almost cast as Gandalf. Like he actually was offered the role, but he passed on the role. So I'm going to open with an impression of Sean Connery as Gandalf. <laughs> Jen as Sean Connery as Gandalf. And now the ring had drawn him here. He will never be rid of his need for it. He hates and loves the ring, as he hates and loves himself. And feel free to give him a nice open palm smack on the behind as you would for a saucy female who steps out of line. Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Frodo Baggins. Oh, what a a title of honor. I am joined today by Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Sean Connery, a.k.a. Gandalf. Thank you very much, Michael. And we are joined by a very special guest this week, Dr. Dennis Wilson-Wise, a.k.a. Peregrine Took. Welcome to the pod. Welcome. Hi, Jen, Michael. How are you guys doing? Doing great. So pleased to have you. You're really going to be elevating the uh, academic quality of our ramblings. Uh, <laughs> hopefully you'll keep us on track and on point. I'll do my best, but uh, I have a Peregrine Took, uh, a Took reputation to maintain, apparently. <laughs> I don't know how well he stays on track with things. That's true. We're, we're setting you up to maybe uh, blurt out some embarrassing information later in the pod. <laughs> I think Mary actually does a book on like plants in the Shire. I, I might ch- try to channel some Mary. That's Mary true. I, I think, isn't he credited as the, the source for, uh, he wrote the authoritative source on pipeweed in the Shire, like the history he of pipeweed? did. Yeah. I believe that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Someday I think we're going to have to all get our pipes out and, uh, try smoking some pipes. I recently tried smoking a pipe for the first time. I was at a wedding and the uh, groom gave out as a groomsman gift, little like, you know, pipes that were inscribed with the date and stuff like that. And I don't smoke, by the way, um, regular things, much less pipes. So, uh, and neither did anybody who was in the wedding party. So this was totally like, it was an awesome gift, but it was mostly because it was fun to watch a bunch of guys try and smoke pipes and fail epically and cough and well but Gandalf makes it look so cool you know and you just want to you want to feel sophisticated but yeah it's it's one of those things just like cigars where it's just better in theory yeah <laughs> type of thing. No, no one was blowing um, uh, smoke boats through smoke rings like Gandalf did <laughs> that, that usually takes one or two days of practice first I think yeah 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 that's it just one or two Well, Dennis is a lecturer in the University of Arizona's writing program, studying the intersections between political theory and modern fantasy literature, science fiction, and horror. He's also the reviews editor for Fafnir, an academic journal that recently became the first to win a World Fantasy Award and serves as the awards administrator for the Mythopoeic Society. And most importantly for our purposes, he's written a lot of really interesting stuff about Tolkien, including an article that will be published in an upcoming edition of the Tolkien Studies Journal that discusses Peter Jackson's postmodern transformation of the character of Bard in his adaptations of The Hobbit. Super interesting stuff. 
Dennis, we're really, obviously really pleased to have you. And we want to give you a chance to talk some of that stuff. And of course, we're going to be getting into the Fellowship of the Ring later on. But um, first, I have to come clean a little bit, kind of lured you here under false pretenses. Um, you know, J- Jen invited you and, and told you she was a, a fellow wildcat. Rare. Go cats. Um, I am indeed. What we intentionally omitted is that I am uh, a graduate of Arizona State University, so I'm a sun devil, your sworn oh, enemy. No. Boo. Hiss. I, I just recently learned that we're supposed to hate you guys, so... <laughs> As someone who's a recent convert to the University of Arizona, I just recently learned um, about my deep animosity for you. So that's uh, <laughs> that, that, that's um, deeply troubling now. He's a dwarf and we are elves. We just don't like each other. You know, so I'll take much. it. Dwarves are uh, underappreciated <laughs> it is in the perfect. legendary. You do love dwarves. <laughs> I do. I do. No, they don't get enough credit. I, I would agree with that. Um, so, Dennis, how long have you been a lecturer at U of A? I, I got I graduated from my doctoral program in 2017. I got a job here at the U of A that fall, so about four years now. And your work isn't limited to Tolkien studies, but it definitely plays a prominent role in your scholarship. So I'm curious, what is it about Tolkien that continues to draw you back in and that makes his work, in your opinion, so uniquely worthy of all the scholarly attention? Well, Tolkien is really the starting point. He, he didn't invent modern fantasy. There was fantasists before him, like Lord Dunsany and William Morris and people like that. Um, we had Robert E. Howard um, with his Conan stories. But if you want to take a look at modern fantasy in the 20th and 21st centuries, Tolkien is really like the central point which so much radiates from. So I actually got started in fantasy lit as a kid. And I never read Tolkien until like my early 20s. So I got a late start on him. And as I just studied him academically, he was just so interesting and so deep with all the medievalism he comes in, uh, uh, the way he um, integrates different medieval traditions from a lot Norse literature, Old English. Um, mm. it, he just became such a fruitful person to study because there's just so much there um, that can, combined with my natural interest in genre fantasy, it was really a no-brainer to start studying Tolkien as a major focus of my research. Right. And so you were a kid and you, and you discovered him as a kid and you enjoyed him as a kid. Was there ever a period where you kind of, all right, put him down, moved on to other things? And then did you kind of rediscover him in, in college when you started focusing on academic pursuits again uh, in a serious way? Or was he kind of always with you and it just seemed natural to include him in the scholarly work you were doing? Well, I actually I did come to Tolkien rather late. I read The Hobbit a number of times in grade school and high school, and I loved it. But I never could get past um, Tom Bombadil in Fellowship of the Rings <laughs> in high school. Uh, I read Tolkien for the um, for full, all the way through for the first time in my early 20s. But it was also coincided at a time where I really stopped reading uh, fantasy lit for about a decade. And I didn't really get back into Tolkien and genre fantasy until my early 30s when I started to do my doctoral program. So it was really until my mid-30s that I really began diving deep into Tolkien and everything that was involved with them. So I actually, somewhat of a, so unusually I know for most Tolkien scholars, I was really late bloomer um, when it came to Tolkien. So it took me a while to get there. Not that I think this is a terribly important thing, but when did you see the movies and was it before or after you read Lord of the Rings all the way through? Oh, it was after. It was, it was after by far. Uh-huh. Um, I think I saw all the movies maybe 
again, long after they came out. I think I saw them in the early 2010s. So I think the Fellowship oh, okay. of the Ring had been out by a decade by that point. I, I remember I, I've read a lot about like the sense of excitement. Um, I was just reading this morning about, you know, uh, the Cannes Film Festival a clip of Fellowship of the Ring that was shown and the kind of intense excitement that it drew on the internet and early publicity for the film. Um, but I came to everything relatively late. Um, so I sort of had the benefit, not of hindsight, but I wasn't caught up in the fervor. I was able to just appreciate them on their own um, without necessarily being caught up with like the whole fan experience, which isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just a, di- a different way that I, I, I somehow came to it. And also kind of unique, I think, because I, most people who read the books after the movies have come out unavoidably have been exposed to uh, I, either they've seen the movie first because their parents showed it to them when they were kids and, and those images are imprinted on their mind or um, even if they didn't see the films, it's still like a part of meme culture, you know, and so yeah. somehow th- they must have been very aware of it. And it sounds like you just kind of weren't and you managed to avoid all that. So even though you read the books well after the movies were out, you still were able to read them without having the movies affect your experience too much or at all. So that's kind of that's, that's so unique. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I do know that Bormer somewhere in the film has said one does not simply do something. Uh, remember those right. themes i right. knew that um, right you know, right but even if i hadn't seen the movies until like the early 2010s but um yeah so you, you you pick up on those things uh beforehand a lot so you pick up bits and pieces um do you have a favorite book of the out of the, all the tolkien legendarium do you have a favorite i i don't that, that's such a tough question it is so tough i know like i i have the earliest memories of the hobbit so there's always a special affection for that but I also like the Cimmerillion. Um, mm. I call it a rip-roaring good read, but it's just really fascinating <laughs> and moody and <laughs> such a wonderful conception of the first age. I wouldn't um, call so it, exactly. I wouldn't call it a page turner, but it is really, once you're into it, it's so engrossing and interesting and beautifully written. It really is. It's sort of, in a way, it feels like, I know there's a lot of differences with like the foam Beowulf, which I teach a lot in my, I teach a monsters class and Beowulf is a big uh, part of that. Right. It's not what you call a, a page turner, but that sort of atmospheric um, sense of tragedy and nobility is really hard to pull off. Um, and he does, and the Cimmerland does a really good job with that. So I, that's, I really appreciate it. Right. Before we get too serious and we will, we'll get very, very serious. <laughs> I want to, I, I want to ask you a few personal questions. Really, really get to know you. And, uh, you know, maybe I see that you're sitting in a chair. I don't know if you have a couch in there. Maybe you want to lay down on the couch. We've we've been told that our interviews are very uh, incisive and cutting and that, you know, people really, they want to unburden themselves and tell their secrets. So um, I hope you're ready for a cathartic, emotional experience. I I have a lot to say about my mother. So let's get get (laughs) this. Oh, good. Oh, good. Because that is. So did Tolkien. So you're in good company. (laughs) That's, That's topic one. Okay. So I I have a question that I'm just dying to know the answer to. Um, And I don't want you to answer too quickly because it's a a deep question. Mm -hmm. What's your preference? Cow's milk, oat milk, almond milk, or soy milk? Go. It's really a no-brainer, isn't it? It's got to be cow's milk. Oat milk. I don't even know what that is. I've never milked oats before, but it doesn't seem possible. <laughs> oat milk is actually delicious. I Here was skeptical, I we were friends. and then I tried an oat milk latte. It was it was good. It was yeah. okay. It was good. 
It, I'm we're, a convert. We're, we're oat milk people now in our house. So, oh, really? Yeah. We, All you right. know, we had a journey to get there. Always, of <laughs> course, cow's milk is the default, I think. And I, I like cow's milk just as much as the next person. You know, I would say that there's a, a tad bit of what you might call lactose insensitivity, you know, that started to manifest in uh, ways my wife didn't enjoy. So mm-hmm. we started looking for alternatives. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. There's a conversion um, process there. Yeah. But we, we, we did almond milk for a long time. I don't know if you guys have ever had almond milk. It's like, yeah. su- I mean, super popular. My wife likes it a lot. Yeah. And it's, I, I like it. It's still, it's delicious. But we kind of discovered that it's environmentally not very good because it, like it takes several water, the, water the, yeah. several gallons of water per almond in the uh, processing of almond milk. And so, I mean, hundreds of thousands, you know, millions of gallons of almonds are, are being, or of gallons of water being wasted in the production of almond milk. So we were kind of it's felt a really little true. bad about that. So we, we moved over to oat milk, which is about as good, I think, in terms of flavor. But um, actually, speaking of California, I think California is like the biggest producer of like produces like 75% of almonds. That's right. So you guys are responsible for quite a bit uh, water shortages. I know. That's that's right. Boom. Well, my loyalty is always to Arizona, so I have no problem hating on California. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's great in many ways. I've got another one for you. This is equally okay. as serious. Are you a bath person or a shower person? And I have a follow-up depending on your answer. Okay, all right. Um, I'll play along. I am a shower person. Baths have been, uh, they were a staple of mine until about uh, the second grade, but uh, <laughs> I, I did make the switch at a, at a young age. That's an, that's an important, that's an important uh, transition point, I think. Oh, very grown up when I did it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just really excited for the day that we get a grown up on the show. I guess a male grown up, a lot of women like baths. And I take love them baths. Frequently. But You're allowed. Shower for, shower for if I'm, you know, I need to be efficient bath for leisure and enjoyment and you know what there's nothing wrong with a nice bath i'm sure i would enjoy it if i could find a bathtub that was big enough to feel comfortable in if the last time i took a bath basically every inch of me was out of the water still so it didn't really (laughs) work or feel comfortable well i tell you what you should get a british academic on your show then because they don't really have showers in england Uh, my wife lived in london for about 24 years and her bathtub was just a bathtub there was no shower Oh, wow. showers. showers are hard to come by in uh, merry old England. So get a British scholar on here next time. You'll get your wish. Well, and no speaking idea. of being environmentally friendly, obviously baths are much better because showers take, I mean, how many times more water than baths? So I, I probably mm-hmm. should be taking baths. Okay. My follow-up. Now, I sort of borrowed this. This is like a, a thing online for a little while. So since you're a shower person, do you go out of your way? take the soap and wash your legs or do you just let them get, you know, the soap goes down from your torso and your legs are washed on their own. I, 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 I do the little spongy thingy. You, you know, the little like, loofah. Uh, loofah. Okay. Yeah. I've never known what those called. I'm a loofah <laughs> person. There you go. And, um, and that question kind of, uh, you just sized up the whole question when you got a, a loofah there. Okay. Okay. All right. So the soap is not even, because I phrased it as a soap question. All right, fair enough, fair enough. I recently discovered that some people don't wash their legs, and I found it really surprising. I thought that uh, that was the point in the shower, but they just don't wash them. You don't really need to. 
Oh, see, see, we have one on. No, on the show I here. do wash because I shave my legs, so I do. But you don't actually need to like we over you dry out your skin a lot. Your skin doesn't really need to be like scrubbed a lot. It actually makes you produce more like oil and it's not great for your skin to actually like wash it a lot. You should rinse off and, and stuff like that. But um, I don't so know. Should We're I stop re- using sandpaper in the in the shower? <laughs> I don't know. There's uh, there's all it, it, different strokes I, for different folks. I, I like a nice half millimeter grade in the shower. <laughs> no? Okay. All this is good to know. Um, well, Dennis, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts and hopes are for the Amazon show. Oh, you guys are probably more up to date on this than I am. I've heard like vague rumors about what's going on, but I really don't know anything at all about what's going on with the Amazon show. I've heard it's going to be highly sexed up. Um, it's one thing I had heard. I do not know if that's going to be true or if they're going to be brave enough to follow through with that conception, if it is. The the sexed up thing is definitely something that made the rounds on the internet. People were freaked out because apparently they hired a intimacy consultant or intimacy coordinator, coordinator um, which made people think, oh, there's going to be scenes that involve intimacy. So maybe some nudity, maybe some sex scenes. And so, yeah, maybe they'll be sexing up the show. But that's basically the extent of the uh, factual basis for people's concerns about that. Mm. So I really have no idea. I mean, it could just be that there is non-sexual nudity um, that will be in the show. And so maybe they need an intimacy coordinator for that because the person has to be naked on set. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be sexed up. Um, right. I think people were also concerned because – Jeff Bezos reportedly, uh, when he got the rights or had Amazon get the rights to this material, you know, said that he wanted another Game of Thrones. So people sort of took that relatively innocuous statement, the underlying meaning of which is unclear, and inferred that he wants Lord of the Rings to be just like Game of Thrones with all the sex position and graphic violence and everything. So I don't, I don't take that either. So I'm not too worried about it, but that definitely was making some people online lose their minds. Yeah. So we act the truth is we really don't know. We know that it's set in the second age and we we know a lot of the cast members and we we've speculated a lot actually on this show and the purpose of this whole podcast is to discuss the show once it airs, but in the meantime we're discussing adaptations, etc. But um you can you know, if you want to take a listen to our earlier episodes, we really do uh, go pretty deep into what we think we're going to see. And there's a lot of cool storylines from the Second Age, Aldarion and Arendis, which we just covered really extensively as one of them. So uh, we're definitely, I we're both optimistic, I think, about it um, until proven wrong. So Yeah, I think that's just because we're kind of both Pollyannas and uh, <laughs> until we have a reason to be pessimistic, we're going to be optimistic. No, that's a healthy attitude, though. It's a... Uh... You know, it could be fantastic and meet all our expectations, and that's always what we want. So, right, looking forward to that. Every episode, we like to report on news if there are any casting updates, any developments of the production of the show, if there are any that are worth reporting on. And and there isn't really a lot that has to do directly with the show that I want to talk about. But one thing I wanted to bring up, this sort of made the rounds on Twitter a little bit. Obviously, you're familiar with the Tolkien Society, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a member and- of the Tolkien Society? I am. Both the Tolkien Society and the Myth and Poetic Society, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Are you about to ask about the recent seminar? I was not – well, it involves a recent seminar. But, okay. Um, they, had a, they had a seminar recently, and apparently another group was formed, kind of uh, slap shot together last minute, 
called the Society of Tolkien. Tolkien. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yep. So you are familiar, and they they scheduled their own seminar or conference designed to conflict, scheduling-wise, directly with the um, Tolkien Society's um, seminar. And this is a symptomatic of sort of a larger rift in the Tolkien fandom, and I think probably, and this is what I want you to comment on, potentially within the um, academic and scholarly world. You know, how do we appropriately approach Tolkien um, as a an author worth studying, and is it appropriate to apply modern lenses, um, modern interpretive theories and approaches to Tolkien, or should we leave the woke politics out of it, the quote unquote woke politics out of it, and uh, only look at authorial intent? And he was a Catholic, so we shouldn't uh, utilize, you know feminist critical theory or anything like that, that's just totally stay mm-hmm. out of it, which is kind of the approach that the Society of Tolkien seem to be taking. We don't want any of that. So we're going to have our own competing seminar and uh, throwing down the gauntlet, there's going to be a battle. So I, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about that and see if what's playing out online between, in the fandom is having a ripple effect in the scholarly community at all. Yeah. So in one sense, I really don't like making distinguish distinguishing between academics and fandom because especially in genre fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror, weird fiction, academics and fans are a lot of times the same. Fans, academics are fans. Right, sure. But in terms of this particular debate with the shadow token society in response to the seminar on diversity, it really is a case that these are not really academic issues of literary criticism being discussed. It's fans who have one idea um, relatively conservative fans who have one idea of Tolkien, and Tolkien himself was a very conservative writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem to be objecting to basically thinking and talking about the w- books in ways outside of the one lens that they are most comfortable with discussing Tolkien. And that's not, and any form of literary criticism, the last literary criticism going on officially for about maybe 140, 150 years. Um, you're always talking about new ways of thinking about old texts. Right. Sometimes you can have very author-centric approaches, like uh, biography is very author-centric. Source studies is very author-centric. Um, and those are actually both big traditionally within the field of Tolkien studies. But you also have to interpret information. And some of the worst pieces of literary criticism I see on Tolkien are things that simply say, this is what Tolkien believes, so this is what his books mean. This is what he says in his letters. And this is so this is what this particular passage in the text means. And the problem with that is that it's not I don't even believe that the author is dead necessarily. Um, but authors need to be interpreted because you can't always take their own statements at face value. I think Tolkien was actually rather infamous because he would deny sources all the time. He he once famously declared that um Richard Wagner's uh, ring had nothing in common with his own ring. Hmm. Which is partially true because Tolkien did not base anything in Lord of the Rings on Wagner's ring cycle. But they were both um, sharing stories about the rings of the Lavalage Gold from Norse mythology. So they do have a connection. They have the same, the same mythological sources in Norse literature. Um, so there is a connection. So Tolkien's statement that there is no connection is kind of misleading because they have the same source material. So there's always a sense that you always have to take the authors and interpret them. And that's kind of what the Tolkien Society with their new seminar was doing. Now, you could sort of raise questions about, is the particular theoretical lens that they're using that useful for Tolkien? I personally do not think that it is. But the fact that they are asking these new kinds of questions is just what normal literary criticism is. 
And that's, and that's, sorry to interrupt, but that's what you write about kind of extensively um, in Mm -hmm. your article on ways of studying Tolkien, notes Mm -hmm. toward a better epic fantasy criticism published in the journal of Tolkien Research uh, about a year ago. You really go deep into that. You know, what's the next wave of Tolkien research look like? What lens should we be applying or would be, in my view, the most effective lens? And you sort of talk about the um, various lenses that are currently being applied and that have been applied in the past and just considering which you think is the most effective, not necessarily saying that other lenses are invalid or shouldn't be applied or that we shouldn't look at it in these other ways, but just making your case for the lens you think is is most effective or useful for Tolkien. And I yeah, just I want to give a little shout out because I think that, that was a great article. I encourage anybody oh, out there you. who's listening to read it. Likewise. Yeah, but Tolkien yeah, has a very non-modern perspective, but I think a non-modern perspective has a lot to say about modern perspectives. It maybe shows us some of the... Um, you know, unwarranted assumptions that modern theoreticians make. So I do kind of disagree with some of the methodological lens of scholars like Jane Chance, but I'm also very fascinated by the ambition of those kinds of arguments. So I'm interested to see what those arguments are, even if I don't necessarily agree the premises. Uh, this whole shadow token society, uh, society token thing, they're just saying we don't want to hear any alternative viewpoints whatsoever, and that I don't yeah. think is going to fly really. Right, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, I think any group uh, that organ whose organizing principle is to limit the ideas that they are going to discuss or that they are willing to be exposed to, it's not really an organization that I'm particularly interested in participating in. I mean, they can they can exist and do their thing, but I don't think it's a way to foster a vigorous and um, useful debate and to grow and to really engage with the text. For sure, I yeah. Exactly. I mean, I I think about this all the time, this topic, because I perform Shakespeare pretty regularly, and I'm currently performing very shortly in August, Taming of the Shrew, which is a a controversial text to say the least. And um, we've gotten quite a bit of pushback. We are in the Bay Area, and there are all kinds of thoughts and perspectives on whether or not this type of work should be perpetuated. And so I, I can't say that I come down on one side or the other. It's something that I'm exploring. But I think that conversation and grappling with these issues is is really important. And again, just um, knowing and understanding the text is also so important to the best of our abilities. So I I, I think it's kind of silly, this divide. I think we're all coming at it from our own lenses, and that's very subjective. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm committed to wrestling with the issue and trying to understand and hope that the conversation keeps expanding. Yeah. Personally, anything that gets people talking about a book is people who can do their love of reading and talk about it, I think is a good thing, whether or not you agree with their particular theoretical stance or lack of one necessarily. I mean, if you're, as long as you're talking about the books and reading the plays and doing these sort of things, I mean, that's really what it's all about, in my view. Yeah, it keeps these works alive and relevant. And and I mean, they are relevant. They're inher- inherently relevant, I think. But um, And they're re- relevant because we keep talking about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Never-ending cycle. Well, thank you for your insights on that. Um, but without further ado, I think we should, I think we should dive right in. So speaking of talking about the books and the films and the films. So we're talking about Fellowship of the Ring, continuing our discussion. And today we're picking up the film 
after Bilbo puts on the ring at his birthday party, which is around 25 minutes, 30 seconds for those watching along with us, those watchers out there. And then we'll get as far as we can. Uh, with our penchant <laughs> for digressions and tomfoolery, we may end up discussing this movie 10 minutes at a time. And that's okay with me. This is a journey, <laughs> not a destination. Yeah. If, if I had my druthers, I would... Uh grind the pace of this podcast down to a slow crawl just so I can live in in these films and this book uh, for as long as I can. Yes, Dennis, this is both of our, Michael and myself, we both, this is our favorite film of the three, by far for me. Wow, okay, awesome. Do do you have a favorite of the three? And you don't have to have one, but most people seem Um, to. I I do like the first trilogy much better than the Hobbit trilogy. So it's sort of like weird because... so I almost said descent order. So I think I think I think the first three um, Lord of the Rings films I like them all equally. But then with the Hobbit films, I like the first one best, second one second best, and the third one, the Battle of the Five Armies, I really actually actively like. Uh-huh. But uh, for the first film, I like them all all three equally well. I think they're all good. I I mean, and that's a fair answer because they were all of course made basically as at one time all together. Mm-hmm. So they all have like a, you know aesthetic similarities pacing similarities and there's so you you can find a favorite between the three but uh it is definitely fair to say that they're all equally good Mm -hmm. so um you have uh expressed willingness to debase yourself by summarizing the plot we're going to cover come one breath and uh, we we applaud your courage and we love this little uh, you can do it segment We've all done it. It's really fun. And um, (laughs) just don't pass out because we have more things to talk about. All right. All right. All right. So we're picking up after Bilbo leaves. Frodo gets back in the ring. Gandalf explains the ring. They go out out of the shire. Black Riders fresh on their heels, but they escape those Black Riders and make it debris. In the meantime, Gandalf goes to Saruman, but it doesn't really work out the way Gandalf hopes. That's good. And that's what happens. All awesome. right. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I took an illicit breath halfway through. I, I, I heard it, but I wasn't about to call you out because I, I, mine was so bad. The, <laughs> the rules are loose in this game. The rules We're are pretty loose. Pretty loosey goosey. I, I cheat anyway, so that's my, my that's my excuse. I was just cheating. That's the trick in life, dear listeners. Just cheat. <laughs> and if any of your students are listening, that's the message. <laughs> Oh. I, I like doing a bit more lessons like this. You know, helps you through uh, difficult times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't take the main road. Find a shortcut through the wilderness. That's the way to get out of the shire every, shire every time. Exactly. Shortcuts make long delays. Isn't that what Peregrine Took said? <laughs> Shortcuts make long delays, but not getting there is even worse. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to look that up morning. for the next one. Yeah, so the the reading, it, just a quick aside before we get in, the the reading preparing for this week was kind of, uh, not that reading Tolkien's ever burdensome, but usually the ten or twenty minutes of the movie uh, corresponds to you know a chapter or two in the book. But because so much material is skipped in the movie, so like much reading a hundred pages and going through Tom Bombadil, and I'm like, I'm never going to get to use any of this. Yeah, it's so <laughs> sad. It's so sad. All right, so let me tee up uh, this this first scene, uh, and then we'll get into it. So uh, we pick up after Bilbo performs his vanishing act at the party. His invisible self goes back to Bagram, which is where we pick back up. He gets inside, takes off his ring, and is obviously very pleased with himself. But Gandalf is already there waiting for him. And as Bilbo packs up, he tells Gandalf he's leaving everything to Frodo. Gandalf asks whether that includes the ring. 
Bilbo says yes, and that it's in an envelope on the mantelpiece. Then realizes he had actually slipped it back in his pocket. Wait, it's here in my pocket. That's when things take a dark turn, as Bilbo starts talking aloud to himself about why he should actually keep the ring. Why shouldn't I keep it? And when Gandalf presses him, Bilbo gets downright aggressive. Gandalf manages to talk him down, and in one of the most important scenes in the story, Bilbo gives up the ring of his own volition. And then leaves for Rivendell, finally unburdened. So this is one of my absolute favorite scenes in, in the whole movie trilogy. It was Peter Jackson's favorite scene. He said that as well in the director's commentary. It's a fantastic scene. I love the cat and mouse blocking here where Gandalf is really just looming and kind of you see Bilbo being so evasive and sneaky. And the performances, I mean, the acting is outrageous in this scene. Right, it is right. so good. I mean, Ian Holm with his micro expressions like it is so mm-hmm. difficult to convey all that he conveys without being sort of overwrought and it being too much and cheesy and he just does an amazing job of it like his the the part where he's sort of possessed by the ring you know and gets hostile turns hostile is just so compelling the whole thing mm-hmm. is ugh, really tense and really dramatic it's wonderful yeah and i remember the part where like gandalf looks that the scene where he looks larger and he has um that that um um modulated voice where he says, I'm not just no mere wizard. And, and I remember because I read because I rewatched that scene before I reread the book. I'm like, man, that, that, that seems like a Jackson. But then I reread the, the pages in the book and it's like he did does have this thing where a character suddenly seems larger and more intimidating. Yeah. Right. It happens to Frodo a number of times in the text, but during Gandalf during that particular scene, it happens as well. And, you know, it's kind of hard to pull that off visually, but uh, I think Jackson kind of does that. Yeah. Um, Without going overboard. I mean, it is kind of subtle. Like, he doesn't, you know, blow uh, Ian McKellen up a lot. It's just kind of like things get dark around him. It, it doesn't really get bigger, but he feels like he gets bigger. And that, that's a tough thing mm-hmm. to pull off. And I think he kind of walks that line pretty well. And, and Jen, to your comment about Ian Holm, I, I had that in my notes, too. I feel like all the scenes that Ian Holm is in, because he was a, a theater person before, and mm-hmm. theater acting is very different from film acting. So I mean, different. You have to, you have to um, speak Everything's and larger. gesture mm-hmm. to the back of the room, right? Because you have to reach the people in the back of the room. So everything you kind of have to overact. You know, you overact in the theater, and it doesn't come off as overacting. It comes off right. And um, he does a good job of he he's almost kind of overacting all the time, but he he takes it right up to the line and never steps over it. I think, you know, he's doing this thing where he's, his eyes get wide when he's petting the ring and, and uh, sort of cooing to it. And then he turns and growls at Gandalf. It's like almost overacting, but I think it's, it comes off perfectly. It's phenomenal. And just the, you can see the struggle in his face. Giving up this ring is like the bravest thing that he does. And you just see the the pain and the hold it's got on him when he drops it to the floor. And and speaking of it dropping to the floor, the magnetic floor was such a brilliant yeah. idea where the ring right. thuds because right. they magnetize the floor to make that um, effect where it kind of sticks and doesn't bounce. That was really genius. Yeah. Right. I didn't actually know that. That's uh, that's new to me. That's the intro. But wow. Yeah. And that that scene, I'm so glad that they 
took some time with that scene. Cause it could have been like a blink and you miss it type of scene where he like, you know, he drops it and walks out and, but they really emphasized it, you know, it focuses it close. There's a close up on his hand. He very slowly, you know, and with great pain allows it to slip out of his hand. And uh, with the ominous music, I mean, they really take their time and I'm glad they did because it is super important. I mean, it's the only time in the history of the ring for the most part that it is given up by its owner voluntarily. Um, Exactly. But it's also so much about, I love Tolkien's, the relationship in the fellowship of the ring, the relationships that exist. And it's such a beautiful depiction of the relationship between Bilbo and Gandalf, because at one moment it's very tender that, childlike um tenderness where bilbo hugs him after he's been you know chastised and he says i'm trying to help you i really love that scene that moment of um tenderness and and then when bilbo steps out and he's just 10 times lighter you can see it all over his face like Mm -hmm. just those transitions that they had both actors had to make um the emotional transitions are very, very impressive. Both these actors have such range and skill. It just, it blows my mind. I think it's one of my favorite scenes too. I can't say that it's my favorite, but it's definitely up there. Yeah, I think it has one of my favorite reaction shots from Ian Holmes. So the moment when he's, you know, he says, you're right, Gandalf, you know, the the ring should go to Frodo. And then he makes to go out the door, forgetting, but not really forgetting that it's still in his pocket. Yeah, and then that great line. pocket. (laughs) <laughs> and then this reaction from Ian Holmes where he kind of turns around and like bashfully sort of pretending he forgot, but you can tell he didn't really forget. It's like perfectly communicated that he didn't really forget. You know, he was kind of, even in that moment after he had said he was going to give it up, he was still kind of half of him was wanting to keep it. And it's just expertly done by, by Ian Holmes. No, it's just like the Lord of the Ring is both like very obvious and like invisibility and all that, but also very subtle at the same time. Um, and so that's sort of like, you know, those sort of minor nuances can be, I think, really effective. And I, that's a really great part of the scene as well. And so I'm going to I'm gonna suggest something that will probably be kind of controversial. I actually think that this scene in the movie is better than how it's done in the book. Now, there's going to be a few instances where I come right out and say that. And, you know, some people will probably uh, write in hate mail, but I think it's better. I actually totally agree with you. But only on the premise that this wouldn't have worked on the screen. Like the book version, I don't think would have worked nearly as well. Right, right. Because the book version, he he doesn't have this moment at the door where it slips out of his hand. He, you know, he goes to put the envelope. He, the ring is in an envelope and he goes to put the envelope back on the mantelpiece. But then it kind of slips out of his hand and falls. And then he makes to go pick it up. But Gandalf picks it up too quickly. And there's another flash of anger from Bilbo. But then he kind of gets over it. And now mm-hmm. the ring's in Gandalf's hand. So he... he he can't choose anyway, so he leaves. So it's kind of like Tolkien actually leaves it, I think, a little ambiguous about whether Bilbo fully would have given up the ring. I, I think I think that's a general difference between how Tolkien handles scenes and how Jackson handles similar scenes. But one thing that seems, I think, is very consistent the way Jackson tends to handle things is that every time there's like moments of ambiguity um and token or sort of like mere subjectiveness uh subjectiveness uh not uh, suggesting something um jackson prefers to make it more concrete and actual he prefers sort of like when you mentioned older about how um uh, bobo is almost overacting but not quite i think there's a lot i think jackson really encourages that sort of 
thing in a lot of the scenes. You get, I think you got that a lot of the Saruman and Gandalf scene coming up in a little bit. But everything that's, that's suggesting something or hinting something, and Tolkien does a lot of hintingness. Um, Jackson really prefers to make it concrete. And sort of, he, he would have musical cues that sort of like dip off by like the emotional scene, um, tone of a setting. Um, he would have actors like Ian Holmes doing their slightly over the, almost overacting reactions to the ring. Um, especially in this first third of the film, every time everybody, everybody says the word the Shire in the Jackson version, they always say it was an air of reverence to really sort of bring home that particular point. And so there's always something like almost over the top about Jackson, but never quite. And that's a very different way, I think, he changes things as opposed to the way a token typically. And I think part of that is just the medium change. You know, it is a film. We do have to keep that audience engaged, always keep the tension um, and drive the plot forward. And so, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I also don't think, I mean, I think that a, a movie that truly uh, truly was true to what Tolkien would have wanted would be a, a, a series and it would be, really long <laughs> yeah that, and i think I you, what it. you pointed out um I, I had a comment that kind of plays into that or i wrote a note that plays into that which is we talked about the prologue in the last episode and how it more or less was effective but one thing it really changed is that it fully introduces the ring and tells the audience what it is why it's bad how bad it is how it's connected to bilbo right up front so there's no ambiguity mm-hmm. about that ever whereas in the book um we experience this scene very differently because we don't fully know what the ring is yet. We kind of discover it a little later in the book, sort of as the characters do. Um, and that's something that Peter mm-hmm. Jackson kind of tends to do throughout is he um, lets the audience in and makes the audience in the know a lot more than Tolkien does because Tolkien uses sort of interlacing effects throughout the the novel to make us feel this is something Thomas Shippey said, I didn't make it up, but make us feel bewildered the same way that the characters feel bewildered. We're sort of just, especially in the first like you know, half of the fellowship of the ring, we're mm-hmm. just sort of going along with Frodo and discovering the black writers at the same time he does. Whereas Peter Jackson, and we'll talk about this later. He introduces the black jet writers earlier. Yeah. We're not just discovering uh, the black writers in the ring at the same time that Frodo does in the books. We're really discovering at the same time that Tolkien does. Um, mm. I don't know how much you know about his the pre- early drafts of the version, but he really had no idea what the ring was um, in the first versions of Fellowship. Um, he had no idea who Aragorn was. In the early drafts, Aragorn was originally a hobbit named Trotter. Right. Um, and, you know, some some of those conceptions, early conceptions, uh, he edited those out and revised them, obviously, but they still continue. Like in the, in the, the Fellowship during the book, the Black Riders are kind of creepy, but they're not menacing. They can have conversations with um, uh, the gaffer and um, uh, Farmer Maggot. But Jackson s- sort of takes out that changing conception that Tolkien had and makes the Black Riders instantly, you know, you know, disturbing figures right off the bat. So there's a, he makes the things a little bit more consistent. And um, there's especially in this fellowship that reading the book, Tolkien was kind of making things up as he went along. Uh, for sure, until right. he finally got his stride uh, a little bit later on. Well, it's it's very clear that Jackson and the the authors, you know, the authors of the script, wanted to underscore the nefarious nature of the ring, and so we do see that over and over again. They established it really early in the prologue, and then in this scene, we get it again 
because we see the grip it has on Bilbo and how he starts becoming hostile and nasty. And it's such a struggle to give it up that I think it underscores um, just how evil this ring is and that it's uh, it's something mysterious at this point. So I like mm-hmm. it also for that reason. Uh, but it is interesting to know that Tolkien didn't necessarily have a clear idea of what the ring was. Yeah, Jackson makes point, the ring almost like another character who we follow along with Frodo because it's in mm-hmm. Frodo's possession the whole time. But it's more than just something that Frodo carries. It's almost like its own character. And we really see that in this scene with Bilbo with the way that Peter Jackson shot it. There's all these perspective shots where you know Gandalf is mm-hmm. looking um, looking down, not just at Bilbo, but at the ring. And we see Bilbo looking down at the ring. And when he's looking at the ring, our perspective is from the perspective of the ring looking up at Bilbo. And so when mm-hmm. you go through that that scene... Like every time we see Bilbo looking down at the ring, we're looking at it from the perspective of the ring and and back and forth. So it, it really there's all these really effective perspective shots that sort of put us in the feet of the ring, either looking at the ring or in the feet of the ring. And it's kind of, I think, a really effective cinema. Um, uh, what's a cinema- cinematic device, something like that. Cinematic device. Well, it's Thank also you. like the longest continuous shot or one of the longest continuous shots in the whole film. Like it took a whole day to film this because they didn't want to break up the shot. They wanted it to be um, as if these two were really interacting. And that was a huge challenge because they were on two different, they were actually in two different sets. So this was a huge challenge, but I think well worth it. Um, And that being said, unless you guys have final thoughts, I think we're going to move on. Yeah, take us to that next scene. To keep it secret, keep it safe. Iconic line here. So after Bilbo leaves, Gandalf goes back into Bag End. He bends down to pick up the ring, but it's a flash of an evil presence of a flaming eye. I think I screamed when I saw this the first time. It was really disturbing. Uh, As Gandalf sits in front of the fire, he's pondering, he's smoking a pipe, pondering Bilbo's final words. Frodo comes in looking for Bilbo, and Gandalf tells him that Bilbo is gone, and he's left Frodo bag end in the ring. He's gone to stay with the elves. He's left you bag end. Um, and he tells Bilbo to keep it secret, keep it safe. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. While he goes off to get some answers. Where are you going? There's some things that I must see to. What things? Questions. Questions that need answering. Then in a series of quick cuts, we see Mordor and hear Gollum shriek, Shire bag Then we get the Black Riders who issue from Minas Morgul. We see Gandalf riding with haste to Gondor. He goes into the world's dustiest library and reads a page from Isildur's diary. Here follows the account of Isildur, High King of Gondor, and the finding of the Ring of Power. Which says the writing on the ring is only revealed in the fire. The writing which at first was as clear as red flame has all but disappeared. Secret now that only fire can tell. Last, we see a black writer asking a hobbit for Shire and Baggins. And then he rides off to Hobbiton. So let's stop there. There's a lot to talk about here. Um, one thing I want to note 
about this scene is that I love when he's actually, when Gandalf is in Minas Tirith and he's going through um, historical records, he reads Isildur's words. So this was actually taken from, in the book, it's in the Council of Elrond. Um, And I'm really glad that they put that diary, uh, put this diary entry in the film in some capacity because I think it's really important um, piece of historical reference and Michael will appreciate that it so reminds me of uh, George R. R. Martin's um, the scene in Game of Thrones when the main character is looking through historical records and realizes um, that kind of kicks off the whole plot. So that, I thought that was very reminiscent of this. Is scene. that the scene with uh, Sam Tarwell? Uh, no, no. Oh, there's that too. Actually, that's another example of it. But this particular scene where um you know a character's flipping through a historical reference records to get answers i'm sure tolkien didn't invent it but it's certainly mm. very prevalent in the fiction world mm-hmm. like over and over again but what i was thinking of is when um when uh, ned stark is looking for answers to why uh the family was killed and he finds the seed mm. is strong written down in historical records you know black of hair black of hair do you know what i'm talking about <laughs> Kind of. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the first season of Game of Thrones. Yeah. The first season of Game of Thrones. Anyway, yeah. Just yeah. That the whole inciting incident now. is Boromir, or not Bor. Well, it is Boromir, um, Ned Stark, uh, played yes. by Sean Bean, uh, reading genealogical records. Exactly. So that that's why it reminded me of that. Um, but I am glad that they included that, and I'm I'm tickled every time I see this sort of. Um, oh, a conflict is kicked off by someone discovering something from from a historical record. Seems to be repeated a lot in uh, in fiction. Well, every time I see this scene and I see Gandalf going into the library, I just wonder to myself, why is this library in absolute shambles? And why <laughs> is the diary of Isildur, which is I'm sure should be uh, coveted and uh, carefully taken care of and looked after historical document why does it look like it's just it's like tearing at the pages it's got coffee spilled on it he pulled it out from underneath some other guy like gondor has fallen on hard times yeah yeah i mean they've got the steward yeah exactly he's shirking yeah he's he's uh not the good librarian that he was i i also think it's just like more visually impressive when it's decayed and decrepit but thematically I think we can talk about the decline of Gondor as seen first in its libraries. Right, right. Yeah, and visually it gives a sense of age, right, and ancient history. So it it is conveying thematically, like, a, you know, vis- through that visual, this, the sense of age and history. But you're right, it's probably to show the decline. But every time I watch them, I'm like, even in a declining country, a declining kingdom, isn't there a librarian that takes pride in their job? <laughs> Just take a dust rag over these things. Put put them in a you know a like air sensitive pressurized chamber, something to take care of these documents because they've been there for thousands of years. I don't know if you've ever looked at special collections, but um, every time I go to the special collections in our library, you know, there's librarians who are watching me like a hawk to make sure I don't right, you know right. smudge a page. <laughs> Right. Uh, I had to, to check out each book and write my name, and I can't bring in my own materials into the library. Then you got Gandalf just it's walking around. It's hard even this buying a, bu- a gun in this country. It's easy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, librarian standards have, decl- are, have improved since uh, since the, those times. That's funny. Yeah. Well, Gandalf fits right in. He's kind of 
dusty and dirty himself. But um, I do love Gandalf in this scene where he sort of reminds me of the dad who's like trying to keep something from the kid that, that you know, they're too young to understand. And he's like, you know, he's treating the ring with such care because he suspects, but he also doesn't want Frodo to catch on. And you really get that sense of like protectiveness and like, I'm the adult in the room and I need to be sure before I open my mouth. Um, And it's a, it's also a great bit of acting from Ian McKellen. He he knows it's dangerous, so he doesn't want Frodo to play with it. So he manages to get Frodo to put it into an envelope (laughs) and he seals it up, but doesn't tell him, you know, why it's so dangerous. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you tell your kids, don't put your, you know, this fork in the electrical socket, but you don't really explain <laughs> exactly what will happen if they do, but you just really don't want them to do it. Oh, yeah. The one thing I, I completely forgotten until I reread um, uh, the passage earlier this morning is how much time um, is elided in Jackson's mm-hmm. version. Oh, uh, in the book, from Bilbo's party to when Frodo leaves the Shire, it's like 17 years pass. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so you kind of, you kind of know that kind of has to, because if uh, Gandalf's going to go from the Shire to Gondor in the library and back to the Shire again, it's going to take, you know, a while, but, um, I had to remind myself exactly how much time had passed, uh, because yeah. he had, Jackson just had, because of the demands of the film, he had to get through that relatively quickly. I yeah. About that. I remember when I was a kid, just, you know, and I, I love the books. And so I wanted to go in there and just, you know spot every inconsistency just like the little prick that i was and the one that jumped out at me was like hey like 17 years is supposed to go by here oh they cut all this out but i i don't think that matters actually like now that i'm really uh, it was, probably, it was a good it. decision uh, oh, definitely. yeah it's a good decision and also we don't feel the 17 years pass in the book but because tolkien just says basically like in one paragraph Gandalf left and then he, you know, came back every couple of years and then nine years passed and Frodo never saw him and he wondered if he'd ever return. And then in the next paragraph, Gandalf comes back again. So we're, we're told that 17 years pass, but we don't experience that as part of the narrative. So mm-hmm. that, that section in the book is still laden with urgency when Gandalf returns and tells Frodo what he's discovered and tells Frodo the story. You know, we still feel like uh, danger is right around the corner because maybe Sauron has, you know, we know Sauron has learned that the ring is in the Shire in the hands of someone named Baggins. Uh, and so we don't, we don't know exactly where the Black Riders are, or we don't even know about the Black Riders in the book, but we know that there's danger right around the corner. So when I'm reading that passage in the book, I still feel like there's urgency. And um, Jackson, I think, effectively creates that sense of urgency I'll be, you know, he cuts out the 17 years. I don't think that was important. And he creates a sense of urgency really effectively. There's all these cross cuts. You know, we see mm-hmm. Gandalf riding off to, to Gondor. And we, at the same time, in the next shot, we see the Black Riders coming out from Minas Morgul. And uh, he's going through the library. And there's, there's this like really active music going on. So we feel like, oh man, there's some time pressure here. Um, and uh, if he doesn't get back quickly and find these answers, something bad could happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, I really think that this scene was done incredibly well. And um, the 17 years passing is only interesting in light of the fact that I think it says something about Frodo's character and that he's so much like Bilbo, where they're both the reluctant hero. Bilbo, Mm. we know in The Hobbit, was so reluctant to go on this journey. And in the same way, Frodo really drags his feet and wrestles with 
whether or not he's gonna go. He know he ha- he right. knows he has to, but he does. He's not quick about it. He takes seventeen years to sort of get his affairs in order. Um, mm-hmm. So in that way, it's interesting, but it absolutely doesn't work for a film. And um, it's it's really okay that they cut all this out. Him, you know, getting ready to leave is is not all that interesting um, in the arc of the whole narrative. One thing it does do, though, and to go back to something I mentioned before, is in the book. All the information that we see, you know, Gandalf going, actually going to Gondor and and learning about the fate of the ring and then capturing Gollum and getting the information from him. We never see that in the book. We're just told it when Gandalf tells it to Frodo. And there's actually a lot of instances throughout the book where um, we discover information retrospectively through some sort of exposition. And that's deliberate by Tolkien. That's not like, you know, sloppy writing. Um, I think he does that on purpose. And Jackson just kind of does away with that. And he depicts all of the scenes that would have happened that Gandalf is describing. So we actually see him go to Gondor. We, you know, we see the Black Riders, you know, issuing forth from Minas Morgul. Um, we see Gollum being tortured. Um, so we're experiencing it. We see um, Ilsurger uh, taking the ring. We see the same thing with Saruman. Yeah. Uh, betrayal. We don't see the Saruman's betrayal in the books. We don't find out about it until the Council of Outrond. Right. Um, Jackson is right, right up uh, front with that very quick. Right. Right. Yeah, it's very action driven. But in the book, wasn't it Aragorn who Aragorn helped Gandalf on this quest mm-hmm. to find Gollum. Gollum? Yeah. Yes. Right. And found Gollum, passed him over to the elves uh, for safekeeping. We don't really. Yeah, I think that. I and they kind of torture him in the book, which I, yeah. I, is a detail that I wish they had kind of kept in because it makes Gandalf and Aragorn's character a little more complex in my view and interesting. To yeah. Know that they did that. I actually read an article one time that said, um, according to the Geneva conventions, uh, Gandalf was guilty of a uh, human <laughs> rights abuse there. Um, I don't remember the details, but um, it was strangely compelling at the time. Uh, the article, it was, it was, it was really interesting. It was in, um, uh, I think it was Mythprint, which is one of the offshoots from the, the Tolkien Society, but um, came out in the early 2000s. But it was an interesting piece there. That's awesome. But yeah, it, it adds a little bit different dimension to Gandalf. Because he says he puts the fear of fire in, in Gollum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not exactly waterboarding, but it's some kind of fire torture. And I'm sure that violates some provision. <laughs> Do we know the, it was torture? Strict- Do we know it was torture, though? Or did he just intimidate him the way that he intimidated Bilbo into giving up the ring? Well, of course, you know, he doesn't make a binding admission that he was engaging in torture, but you know, he, I think we can. Plausible uh, deniability by Gandalf. Right, right, right. But he says, you know, he puts the fear of fire. He said, like, make some comment like uh, Gollum was, you know, blubbering around and being evasive. And he said, you know, but so time was short and I had to get to the truth of things. So I had to, I put the fear of fire in him, I think is what he says. And so I, I don't know. You can interpret that however you want. I mean, that's hmm. sort of a, some form of coercion through you know physical pain or could have been uh, anything i'm not convinced it was torture but uh (laughs) that could be a digression given that he shows such compassion later too sure sure. well and he even says in the book when he's describing this he says you know i've it's a very sad tale and i feel bad for Gollum and frodo's this is actually in the book this is where we get the scene that happens later in um the minds of moria where frodo says, I know I wish the ring had never come to me and I wish Bilbo had killed Gollum when he had the chance and and Gandalf kind of uh chastises him and says, you know, 
pity was what stayed Bilbo's hand and who are you to deal out death and judgment, all that sort of stuff. So that actually happens very early on in the book when he's describing um, finding Gollum. So we'll talk about that later in the uh, Minds of Moria scene, but that happened much earlier in the book. This is our first introduction to the Black Riders. I think we haven't heard them shriek quite yet, but we get the menacing ring wraiths that are super interesting and I think have been replicated throughout fantasy, which you could probably speak to, Dennis, more extensively than I could. Oh, yeah. People love ring wraiths. I'm thinking about Harry Potter. I'm thinking about, I mean, there's countless examples, but um, but the shriek of the ring raves is actually for, uh, Peter Jackson's wife, Fran Walsh. Is that right? Yeah, she voiced the, sh- the that like bone chilling scream, which I thought was wow. really interesting. They distorted it, but yeah, that's her. <laughs> I, w- I would hope there was some uh, overlay of digital effects going on there because otherwise, <laughs> if I were Peter Jackson, I would never get in a fight. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's you'd always remember to take out the garbage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, that's her. So we get this like really scary, menacing scene. It is a menacing scene. I mean, it's, it's Frodo walks in and the papers are blowing about and the windows open. And then I love the juxtaposition of the next scene. Yeah, so let's uh, let's describe that scene. Um, it's a pair of scenes uh, called "At the Green Dragon" and "The Shadow of the Past." So after we've seen that there is a black rider headed straight for Hobbiton, it cuts to the Green Dragon, where we see Merry and Pippin singing a drinking song, and a bunch of old, old hobbits are gossiping. After a night drinking, Frodo goes back to Bag End, only to find that it's been broken into by Gandalf, who wants to know. And Frodo produces the envelope with the ring, which Gandalf immediately throws into the fire, revealing the lettering described in his Elton's diary and confirming that it is, in fact, the one ring. Can you see anything? There are markings. It's some form of elvish. Gandalf gives Frodo a history lesson about the ring. This is the one ring forged by the Dark Lord Sauron. He reveals that Gollum told Sauron that a Baggins has the ring. I looked everywhere for the creature Gollum. But the enemy found him first. I don't know how long they tortured him. Amidst the endless screams of the name Babel, they discerned two words. Frodo decides to leave the Shire, and Gandalf tells him to go to Bree, where he will meet him at the Inn of the Prancing Pony, but not until he's visited with Saruman, the head of his order. He is both wise and powerful. Trust me, Frodo. They hear a noise out the window, but find that it's only Sam, who insists that I even dropped no eaves, sir, honest. As a punishment, Gandalf decides that Sam will accompany Frodo. And my favorite part of these scenes, unfortunately, was cut in the theatrical edition. And that's where we see Merry and Pippin singing uh, a drinking song oh, at the Green Dragon. That gets it. cut, Me and too. it's so great. I love it, too, so much. So it's actually that drinking song is straight from the book, but it's a combination of two songs, the traveling song and the bath song. And I just love it so much. The lyrics are really delightful. Um, 
maybe we can like post the lyrics when we do this episode but it's so fun it's such a fun look at hobbit culture and then the gossiping hobbits i love because that's actually really prevalent in the books like hobbits being suspicious of the outsiders and gossiping and it just reminds me of a small town and again we get that you know they couldn't spend too much time in hobbiton like there's so much more to get to but i agree with you michael i love this scene and we get the the rosy cotton flirtation, which is definitely not in the book, but a wonderful uh, welcome addition, I think, in the film where Sam is kind of float- flirting with Rosie and um, or just looking at her while she's bartending. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's actually a good setup because they get married in the end. So yeah, I think that, exactly. You know, Jackson did a good job setting that up because they do they get together in in the extended edition, but in the theatrical version. He cuts all the Rosie Cotton scenes, I think, for the most part. I, I, yeah. You see her face a couple times, but these scenes where they kind of lock eyes and they sort of set up that there's maybe something between them in a subtle way, that all gets cut. So in the theatrical version, it's kind of like it, it does kind of take it took me by surprise where like cutting all the way to the end where they're um, after the ring has been destroyed and they're laying on the mountain and and Sam's uh, saying all the things that he'll miss out on and he sort of cryingly says oh you know rosy cotton dancing this you know if there was ever a hobbit i would have married it would have been her which is a very touching scene but it it was a little surprising when i heard it the first time because rosy cotton's like never really introduced in theatrical version uh at all before that but in the book she's not even that prevalent though no she's not she's not she's really not Not she only makes an appearance yeah at the end so i i like she even mentioned in the book in 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 the fellowship of the ring I, I don't know. I don't know. I'll I have to go back and look. I don't think she's mentioned. I think it's not until the, the final, The Return of the King. That's what I think as well, yeah. My memory's right. Yeah, but that yeah, that seems delightful. I'm sad they, they cut it. And um then we you know, we move on to the Gandalf is the secret is the safe. This ring is the, or sorry, this scene is so great when he's when they discover when Frodo discovers what the ring is. I love that they decided to sort of have the ring react um, because it, it it's in keeping with their idea that they want it to be a character in the film, which we've mm-hmm. talked about. But the ring actually utters a sentence when they mention Sauron's name. Oh, right, right. He utters a word. I think I looked up what the ring says, but it kind of whispers, which there's no instance of that actually happening. In the books, the ring right. doesn't speak, but I thought it was a a good choice for the films. Again, underscoring that um, that this is something otherworldly. This ring, yeah, because I think at that moment, so they're sitting at the table, and Frodo Gandalf has told Frodo the story, and Frodo says, "But Sauron was destroyed. The Lord Sauron was destroyed." And then there's this sort of like whisper on the wind, and they both look at the ring. And then Gandalf says, no, they're, they're one. Their spirits are bound together, or his spirit is bound to the ring. And um, it is definitely not strictly accurate <laughs> to the books and, and the way the ring worked, but it's not like, I don't know that it's inaccurate in an important way, and it was sort of an effective way of further hammering home that the danger of this artifact, certainly the idea that Sauron's spirit is in the ring. I mean, the ring does... You know, there are several instances of the ring being at work throughout the books and the ring having a very like apparent effect on the the bearer. So the idea that it has some sort of will, maybe not consciousness, but some sort of 
certainly an effect on the will of the bearer, but maybe a will of its own. Um, that idea is in the book. So uh, depicting that through the use of uh, a voice on the wind, I thought that was an interesting choice and I kind of liked it. Yeah, especially because movies tend to be so visually dramatic. I think that's one of like Jackson's strengths is he really plays up the visual elements, um, the visual possibilities of Tolkien's text. Because right. really, um, I was thinking about this when I was rewatching the uh, the Jackson version. It's like there's really two ways you can sort of play a lot of these scenes. One way is sort of like you you dramatize all of the individual moments, like the, the like you said, almost overacting each of the scenes. But you know, Shane, the word Shire was such reverence. Everybody who looks at the ring has to look with a sense of like desperate longing or something like, uh, like that. Mm-hmm. And there's another way you can do it where it's much more muted and understated. And I think that's a little bit more like Tolkien's conception because the ring has a very insidious logic. Um, I think that's what Saruman's corruption was all about. Is like the logic of becoming his own master and rivaling mm-hmm. Sauron was, you know, fundamental there. But that's not visual at all. And so if you were doing like a more art house version of Lord of the Rings, you could have had like an understated way, but for the kind of film that Jackson was going for, you kind of do have to dramatize each of those moments, like having the ring speak and, and um, be a character in his own right is one of the, I think, more effective ways you can make that dramatic in that way that a movie needs. Right. I mean, what you're kind of describing is like a, almost like a Paul Thomas Anderson type of approach to the, story like you know there will be blood um this very subtle understated slow burn type of narrative where oh yeah con- yeah exactly the conflict you feel it very strongly but it's not uh on the surface in an obvious way and it's not made as obvious as as jackson does it's, i love mm-hmm. paul thomas anderson's films and i could i could see that being actually a great way of adapting tolkien there will be blood that's uh, daniel day lewis in that one Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that also reminds me of like, if you want to talk about difference in directing styles, um, remember No Country for Old Men? Oh yeah, Coen Brothers. Man? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a um, no music, um, no cues along that way, and like it's one of the most intense films I've ever seen. But it had no music. It had uh, the main character dies off screen. Um, and so it's like a complete biometrical way that Jackson does, um, but it would have been a very different film. And I don't think he could ever have had a, a big budget with the special effects that Jackson does in a film like that. But yeah, it's just interesting, like the various choices a director like Jackson make and one way he could have gone, but the way he did go, I think it's just an interesting thing. I actually love this scene because he, I love the when he's offering the ring to Gandalf in desperation and you really get to see Gandalf's character shine here yeah you know and and you also see his humanity in a sense of don't tempt me Frodo like I'm fallible take it Gandalf take it no Frodo you must take it you cannot offer me this ring I'm giving it to you don't tempt me Frodo I dare not take it one of the few times you see true fear on Gandalf's face. True, right? he's exactly. Really afraid, afraid of the offer. He's really afraid, and I love. I feel like this line is is really essential to the theme of the whole entire series. Saying, "I would use this ring for good, but through me, it would wield an, a terrible evil." Something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important line, and um, again, 
the way that it's the way that it's done we're getting the perfect straddle of drama without it being overkill yet again like a really good example of it when he's offering it to gandalf um and i think that sets up a good parallel with that gandalf being afraid of the accepting the ring and with what happens to galadriel in the next film if you ask it of me i will give you the one ring you offer it to me freely in place of a daughter lord you would have a queen not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the Lord. I pass the test. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. Like, she has almost exactly the same reaction, so I think Gandalf and Galadriel are alike in quite a number of ways, so I think that adds a nice connection between those two scenes. The sort of mutual, you know, hands off, let me back away from the spring thing kind of vibe. Yeah, and to to piggyback on that, both Gandalf and Galadriel, they would never take the ring by force. I think that they are good enough that that's just not something they would consider. And Galadriel, I th- think, says something to that effect that she had sort of already decided that she would never do that. If the ring came within her power, she wouldn't take it by force. But then Frodo does something that surprises her and offers it to her willingly. And that is something she had not really considered in advance and come to terms with and decided how she would deal with that situation. And so she, there is some, even though she decided I shouldn't take the ring, she's confronted with an offer that she never expected to receive. The same offer that Frodo also is giving Gandalf. They can have the ring without taking it from somebody and, and taking it through an act of evil. So they can take it without sort of... Uh, uh, starting off on the wrong path the way Gollum did through an evil mm-hmm. act. Um, they both... Uh, uh, they resist uh, pass power. The test. What is they that? resist Glad power and temptation. The yeah. yeah, they pass the test. They resist power um, because they know it ultimately corrupts. And that's the difference between... That's what distinguishes them from other characters. So I, I think that's a really intense exchange followed yeah. up by a wonderful the wonderful lighthearted comedic relief of Sam being poked and prodded and pulled out of the garden because he's been eavesdropping. Um, (laughs) And it's, I think that this pairing of comedic relief, like Jackson insert injecting the comedic relief, it's always great timing in my opinion. Like this film in particular has the perfect balance of like drama and then a little bit of levity. Yeah. As does the Lord of the Rings. You know, when I go back and read the Lord of the Rings, there is a lot of, it's a different style of humor than Jackson uses. Mm-hmm. Jackson updates the humor a bit, but there is uh, Tolkien's brand of humor throughout and a humor that I really enjoy. And so he he has that balancing act going as well. So I some people have a problem with the humor that Jackson uses, but I think it's fine. You know, he updates it. But other than that, it's, it's totally consistent with what Tolkien does, which is, uh, you know, balance the, the drama and tension with some form of humor. Yeah, definitely. Um, One thing I miss uh, with the end of this scene that I would have loved to see see happen, and it, you know, the scene ends just fine. But in the book, when Gandalf uh, sentences Sam to go along with Frodo, and by the way, what a horrible thing to do! Gandalf knows that by telling Sam he has to go with Frodo, he's basically potentially giving him a death <laughs> sentence. You know. 
Sam and Frodo don't realize what they're really in for, but I'll teach you know, the like, eavesdrop on me. Yeah, yeah, I'll teach you the eavesdrop on me. You're going into Mordor. <laughs> I mean, at this point, they don't know they're going to the mortar, but still, it's like, ah, that's kind of rough, Gandalf. Yeah, but good in the luck book, gardening there. Yeah. <laughs> but Sam is actually really excited because they're initially going off to see the elves. And he says, he's, he's so excited. He says, oh, we're going to see the elves and, and hooray. And then he immediately bursts into tears. So he's like excited to go on this adventure, but he's also the simple hobbit and he's terrified to leave home. And it's, this moment, I would have loved to see Sean Astin portray because I think he's a great actor. And we, yeah, but we do. Speaking of that, I'm moving to the next scene, the passing of the elf scene. We we do get a bit of that in that he's never left the Shire. Mm. And as soon as so Frodo and Sam set out on their journey, they walk across the Shire. We get beautiful. I love these shots in the movie. Yeah. Um, of just the scenery is gorgeous, and we get Sam's classic line: "If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been." This is it. This is what? If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Um, and I love that moment, you know? It's just really, it's really sweet on, interaction mm-hmm. of seeing Sam step out of his comfort zone, literally. Um, and then we hear the first introduction of the Fellowship musical theme, which we discussed last time with our wonderful say. guest Jordan. Um, while taking a break they take a breather sam and frodo and they see some elves walking along the path and they're they're singing a song and frodo explains that they're going to the gray havens they're leaving middle earth they're sailing away to never return which makes sam sad i don't know why it makes me sad so they lay down to go to sleep and sam is complaining he can't sleep on roots he's used to a nice uh feather bed hobbits are very accustomed to comfort. Um, but then it cuts back to the Black Rider overlooking the area they just traveled, reminding us that danger is still ever-present. I love the start of this. The, the very first line of this scene is Gandalf yelling at Sam, come on, Samwise, keep up. And then you see Samwise running with his like pack that's four times as big. I, I love that because it's like one of the few instances in the movie shots in the movie that retains the sort of master servant quality that's in the the book, which they more or less stripped out of the movie. Um, I think for understandable reasons, it's people just wouldn't get it. It, it wouldn't it kind resonate. Of offends modern sensibilities. Yeah. It wouldn't resonate with current audiences. And um, I think there's a lot we could say about that, but they, Jackson makes the decision to pull most of that out. But this is a little bit of a, an echo of that um, because Sam throughout the book is always carrying more than his load and, and always trying to, oh no, you don't need to carry that, Master Frodo. You know, I'll carry that. And and uh, Peregrine took and Mary are kind of jokingly tease him and treat him like a servant, which Gandalf is kind of doing here by yelling at him, "Come on, Samwise, keep up!" You know. So I, I think it's a little funny. It's more of something that book readers, I think, would appreciate. Um, I don't know that movie readers would get it, but I I, I enjoyed that little scene. Yeah, so much of this, actually, what we just covered is not in the regular version. We should mention that a lot yeah. of this is, is just from the extended version, the whole interaction with the elves, which is so, so different in the book. It's like hard to unpack just how right. different it is in the book. <laughs> right. Because they actually spend a lot of time with the elves uh, in their company. They get fed. There's all these different characters that in the book um, that it just wasn't feasible it wasn't feasible to pack all of this in the movie, which is 
understandable. Um, but I love in the book, I love how entranced Sam is by the elves. And I mm-hmm. am glad that at least in the deleted scene, we get a little bit of musicality because I think the music of the elves is so important in the book. And we really just don't get it in the movies, which is a huge bummer. But I was really curious what they were singing. And they are actually singing a song. It's kind of a choral thing, right? Like It's Gilthoniel O Elbereth is the song. Oh. And it is it is an actual song from the books, and it's part of it's in Elvish. Um, but these are Noldor elves, is what I believe, based on their banner co- colors. Um, but yeah, the song is actually really beautiful, and it is a bummer that this was, was cut. Um, but yeah, cut for time, once again, it doesn't really do much to further the plot. Yeah, I struggled with with this the cutting of this scene because it does in relatively short amount of time tell the audience that the elves are fading and conveys this notion of a broader world and that and that the elves are fading, which doesn't come across that well in other parts of the movie. I mean, it is talked about. You know, Elrond talks about it at great length later in the movie. This whole subplot between about Arwen leaving and and Elrond trying to tell Aragorn to let her go, blah, blah, blah. But um, this way, this is the one of the few times where it's really depicted in sort of an ethereal, visual, sensual way, um, or a sensual way. And Sam just saying this line where, you know, I don't know why, but it makes me sad. That to me is just like a perfect little nugget that encapsulates this this idea of the, of the elves leaving and, and fading and sort of the sadness that permeates Middle-earth no matter I, what happens. I actually don't think that um, that that is communicated well in the Jackson films. I think it, I understand right. the difficulty of communicating it, but it is a really big theme and idea in the books is that there's this massive struggle going on and the elves have felt like they have done their part and a lot of them are fleeing. And And I think understanding why is sort of, tricky for folks who haven't read the books mm-hmm. um one thing i can probably mention is like Tolkien always himself didn't think it came out that well in the lord of the rings either like when he was initially trying to get the lord of the rings published he finished it like i think seven or eight years before he actually published it and the reason why it took so long was because he was trying to get cimmerillion which was not quite complete at that time Right. Um, published at the same time because he felt that you could not really understand the backstory of the elves unless you also had the Cimmerillion um, read that first, read the history of the first and second ages and, you know, the whole necessity of going to the um, Blessed Isles. But, you know, obviously that he didn't get the Cimmerillion published until much, much later. And, you know, so there's always that sense, like even Tolkien didn't think in the books necessarily it was explained as fully as he wanted. And it was, it's just a really hard concept to get across in, in the film version as well. You have the one scene where you had, you had the elves shot from a distance, sort of leaving, but, you know, how much that resonates with the reader if he doesn't know the books is a, kind of an interesting question. Well, and one thing that, that's really important in the books, I think, is the, the way that Tolkien has the hobbits leave Hobbiton leave sort of the real world and enter the world of fairy, you know, as they enter the wider world and they encounter elves and all that. I think that entering the old forest is kind of like a, a seminal moment. That's when that happens. You know, mm-hmm. there's like an archway and they actually, it's almost like a visual more than symbolic 
way of showing they're leaving the real world and entering the world of fairy. And then they encounter the old man Willow who's sort of, sort of a magical thing. And then Tom Bombadil and um, the movies don't have that moment. Um, Very true. And this, this would have kind of been that moment, but I don't think Peter Jackson had that in mind. And so it, it wouldn't have really worked that well as this moment. So that's something I kind of miss um, in this story. It, it, there's, there's not this moment where they're, leaving the real world and entering the world of fairy and you don't really feel that. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of wish that this scene had been kept in and maybe changed um, in some way to try and accomplish that end. Yeah. Well, some people call um, works like um, the world line, the witch in the wardrobe and Lord of the Rings, uh, portal quest fantasies, the idea you're in one road mm-hmm. and you do something that takes you into a completely different world. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's very obvious. You go through a wardrobe, takes you to the real world, to Narnia. But in Lord of the Rings, the argument goes, uh, the Shire is more like the real world, and it's outside the Shire, the land of fairy, uh, the larger world of Middle-earth, that's the new secondary world. And in Jackson, that does get kind of like squished together. Um, mm-hmm. The Shire does, is different in feel from Brie. Brie is much more like a lot of horror imagery where the Shire is this mm. idealized pastoral realm. Uh, so you have that difference in scene, but they're not necessarily different worlds necessarily. Uh, they like the mortal world of mortals and the world of fairy. So you don't right. get quite that. Especially since you do have those ethereal elves in the Shire that Sam and Frodo see leaving, which makes Sam sad. So there's not that big discrepancy between the two worlds that you get in the book. Right. And it's, it is hard to convey that. And actually I was wondering about this because the books are so full of this concept of fairy and this concept of like magic and mystery and all these different things. And Jackson himself in the director's commentary, he does speak to the fact that he's not a fan of magic in films and he, he wanted to preserve the realism for the most part. Like he sneaks it in, I think in important places when totally necessary, but there is a lot of fantasy missing from from the movie, and um, I do think it would be difficult to depict without it um, just just coming off as campy. But um, but I definitely miss it. I miss Tom Bombadil, that jovial man. And do you um, really? Yeah, yeah, I love that in the book. I just oh, okay, wow. I love that in the you're, book. You're the I mean, one, huh? I'm the one. I feel. Am I in the minority, Michael? You need to weigh in now. Well, because Dennis, you said that's where you got stuck, right? You can never get past Tom. You couldn't get past the, the first time, years. right? It was Tom Bombadil. I don't remember particularly liking or disliking Tom Bombadil. I think I, I think I would kind of read quickly, probably through Tom Bombadil a little bit, but I didn't. Uh, I still like the old forest stuff. There, there have been several adaptations of Lord of the Rings. Not all of them produced. Tom Bobo does tend to get cut in most of them. Yes, uh, because it would be difficult to portray. Um, and that's understandable. And he's but, even a very unusual concept, too. He's more like, like a, um, a, spirit of a, a spirit of a place. But you have that in Greek mythology. You have uh, genius low-key a lot. Uh, Ian Forster has genius low-key in some of his fiction. But it's not really something that resonates modern. We don't know what the, a, a spirit of a place is. That's kind of what Tom Bombadil is. Well, the um, the Soviet-era Lord of the Rings took on Tom Bombadil. They did, did they? I thought they did a pretty bang-up job, job of it. But um, someday, I do hope someone attempts it, uh, to be honest. 
because I think he's so lyrical and fun and lighthearted and he rescues them from the savage forest, which we get none of. I love the the forest sort of fighting back here when they're mm-hmm. sneaking through. I wish we could have that, but I do think we I don't I don't think there was time for any of that. <laughs> so I understand the cut. Actually there I really I think there's like two possibilities for follow up films. One with Tom Bombadil and one about the scouring of the Shire. Mm. So, I mean, they they have the rights for these. They could do like like not sequels, I guess, if they wanted to. Um, it would be interesting to see that. I really really miss the the scouring of the Shire and the Jack Brums. I wish they had a version of that somewhere. They made a new a fourth film uh, after Lord of the Rings for uh, to tie up that end. No, I agree. But can you imagine if they had done it in this film and people were like, another ending? That way it would have been tough. It would have been tough. <laughs> it was actually, at one point, um, I was reading this this morning, there was threats. Um, after they Jackson lost his initial funding, there was threats to limit the film to only one. It started off as two films. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. They lost funding. It was going to be threatened to take it down to one. And then all of a sudden, he, he found a... a someone a new line he said oh let's do three and it was sort of like a, like a godsend but it was that it's really hard to make that many movies for that big of a budget and no way they could have done scouring yeah well thank goodness i mean someone will do it though it will happen you um, know what could happen in theory is that amazon could adapt the actual lord of the rings at in television series format um in which case I think a television series would be the best medium that would it would best allow them to keep in all these digressions, these little side plots. We could keep, we could really we could have a whole episode on Tom Bombadil. We could have a whole episode on Scouring of the Shire. It would actually fit very well in like the normal pacing of a of a television series structure. They could keep all that in, and it wouldn't feel bloated. It would you know there wouldn't be any problems with it. So I I kind of hope that they do that someday you know, maybe several years in the future and see how this series goes, but they could actually uh, readapt to the actual Lord of the Rings. Jeez, one can only hope. I think that, you know, knowing that they have the rights, of course, they're going to capitalize on it for as long as they possibly can. So, and we will be talking about whatever it is that they capitalize on, folks. So join us for this very long journey. Um, But gentlemen, any final thoughts before we wrap up this scintillating conversation. Uh, my final talk thought is Dennis, you are, you are no fool of a toque and uh, you've, <laughs> you've been a, you've been a great guest. Oh, you've just met me. So give me time. <laughs> but no, thank you so much for um, having me here. This was a lot of fun. Um, and it gave me a chance to sort of look at the film and the book together again. And it's been a while since I've done either. And it was a, you know, it's always a pleasure to have a, a re- an excuse to go ahead and do that. So uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. And where, where can people find your work? Can people take your class online? I mean, how can people engage with you? Um, yeah, so I teach at the University of Arizona. I, I teach writing classes. I also teach a course on monsters, aliens, and ghosts. That is online, but you do have to be a U of A student. But I have a website. If you just type in my name, Dennis Wilson Wise, uh, it'll pull up. Um, I got links to my articles that are open access. Um, some are behind paywalls, but um, yeah, so um, you can just Google me if anybody's interested. And you can also email me if you want to see a paper of mine that's not available online. Anybody who emails me, I'll send you a copy. It doesn't really matter to me, but um, I'm, I'm always open to that sort of thing. 
I would totally take your class on ghosts and aliens. Uh huh. I I'm a believer. Oh sweet! Absolutely. And I do work in Token, by the way. I found a, I found a way to get them in there. So. Uh, oh man! Is, if only I were still a student. If only. Is it for the, <laughs> because of the Barrow Whites? Is that how you work them in? No. Um. So I don't actually teach the Lord of the Rings. I, I teach I teach off sort of a teaching Beowulf, which is a Tolkien's own favorite poem. But also Tolkien, as part of his medieval scholarship, wrote the most famous essay on Beowulf ever written, right. which is about the three monsters in Beowulf. So when you have a course on monsters and Tolkien writes about monsters in this famous essay, you know, it's kind of a natural fit. Yeah, the course wouldn't be complete without it. Exactly. So I work in a new, a different side as Tolkien into the course. Oh, I love it. Side. That is so cool. Um, thank you so much again, Dennis. That's going to do it for this episode of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime. If you like what we're doing, please share us with another Tolkien fan in your life, or even better, share us with someone who you think might become a Tolkien fan. Um, if only they just found the right podcast. And come back next week. Join us as Gandalf rides to Isengard. Farewell, my friends, and may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. Okay, Dennis, stick around because mm-hmm. I have a cup, a question for you. And actually, Michael, I'd like you to answer and I will answer as well. Um, okay. If you could have sit down and have a drink with any character from the Lord of the Rings, we're going to go Lord of the Rings, not the wider legendarium. Mm. Um, who would you want to have a drink with and what drink would it be? Interesting. I would definitely not want to have a drink with Gandalf because I would spend all my time trying to impress him. <laughs> like, oh, Gandalf, did you know you did this thing uh, in the second age? He's like, Rrr. no, because I, I would just embarrass myself. No way I would ever want to talk to Gandalf. Um, um, I think I'll go with Bilbo. He was my first love. I, I, I knew him from The Hobbit, but he seems like a, a down to earth fella. And um, he, he, he puts up a good lauder, he puts yeah. up a good pantry. So um, that is, I think, uh, a good criterion for uh, having a drink. I'd probably just go higher beer. That's, He'd probably start singing choice. songs with you. Yeah, I approve that choice. He'd probably get really jovial, the drunker he got, and, you know, be very hobbity and boisterous and sing songs. And he's got great stories. We know that. Great anecdotes. So good choice. And you know, he, if you get the munchies, you know, he'll whip out wheels of cheese and, uh, you know, loaves of bread. I mean, he'd have you covered for all kinds of midnight snacks. Oh, for sure. Hos- mm-hmm. Hobbit hospitality. <laughs> So um, I was thinking about this and I came to my answer pretty quickly because uh, there's really only one character that I would think of when I think of like a characteristic drink. And is, is the Hobbit included in this or is it just Lord of the Rings? We can include the Hobbit, sure. Okay. All right. Because <laughs> my my pick would be uh, to drink some honey mead with Bayorn, right? Bayorn, the Hell skin yeah. changer. He's got his... He's, he's got his my, honeycomb, my guy. his bee fields. He's my crush. <laughs> my man crush. I think it's more of a bear crush. But, bear uh, crush, yeah. Good He'll give you a bear hug. You're nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there wouldn't be a whole lot of conversation going on. It'd probably just be like, you know, arm wrestling and uh, 
grunting and stuff like that but you know there's a time and place for everything and you'd be wondering the whole time like is he gonna eat me or that's true i'd be watching what i was saying not to offend him but no certainly an interesting conversationalist I was always just so. It's funny when I go back and read the Hobbit. And you said you were drinking Honeymead. Okay. Yeah. But when I go back and read the Hobbit, uh, I still have just like such fond feelings for the Hobbit. Obviously, because it was the first thing I read of Tolkien's, and I love it. I have great memories of it. You know, it's hard for me to go back and read it now as an adult. I don't enjoy it nearly as much. It's obviously not as serious of a work, but in my memory, it's also so strongly imprinted. The chapter on uh, Baron, I just. I just loved it for whatever reason, like the idea of this sort of mythical figure who's got talking and walking animals, dogs that, you know, serve him like a waiter. It's like so bizarre and so fairy and it always just stuck with me. So I always really liked it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite chapters, too, from The Hobbit. It's it's definitely very fantastical. Uh, well, I wrestled with this one. And at first, you know, I really thought that I would want to sit down with Eowyn, Shield Maiden of Rohan, and have like a nice, Mm. full-bodied Pinot Noir and talk. Mm. But then I felt like she'd be really intense, and it'd be a really intense conversation. Like, we could go deep, but to quote Jane Austen, I dearly love to laugh. So... I actually have the opposite answer as you, Dennis. I decided I would want to sit down and have a Moscow mule around the fire with Gandalf the Grey. The reason being that nice. I feel like the tipsier he got, the funnier he got. He is a funny guy. He's funny. <laughs> He's really funny and clever and also so brilliant and so quick and he's he's everything you'd want in a conver- a deep conversational partner. Like he could go deep, but he's also silly and goofy. He's he's kind of the whole package. And I'd also just want to ask him so many questions. So yeah, that's my answer. And thanks for. Would you also smoke a pipe with him? Oh my gosh, probably. N- I'd probably make a fool of myself at that point. But I would enjoy <laughs> watching him make all kinds of shapes with his crazy pipe smoking skills. I I bet after the third Moscow Mule, you'd uh, you'd try smoking probably, the pipe. Probably. And did you guys know that they changed that a bunch? Like in the films, they changed that a lot. They were like, okay, we're gonna have him chewing toffee or like doing some other some other thing, and then they were like, no, 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 it has to be a pipe. Right. They had to fight um, to keep that in. Yeah. So I'm glad. It, I'm glad they. Oh, because of the smoking messages. Yeah. They were worried about. They were worried about it, oh. but it was totally fine in the end. So. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah, thank goodness. It would have been so weird. Totally. Chewing toffee yeah, like he was chewing tobacco or something? Or just chewing toffee like he had candies around with him? Like he just pulling chewing out bags toffee. of Skittles? I think and... they were trying to find some kind of, yeah, like they were trying to find some kind of substitute, but it definitely. Gandalf chewing bubblegum doesn't quite have the same uh, mythic <laughs> residence. Yeah. Hey, Gandalf, here's a jawbreaker. Instead of blowing <laughs> shit smoke rings, he's just blowing the biggest bubbles and then they they pop. That's his like magical skill. It does not.